I'm going to read what is really kind of in this middle of a section of Scripture. We, we let, left off in uh, Genesis chapter 40 uh, last week, and I'm going to skip to the very end of Genesis 41, read for you eight verses, and we're going to cover all of Genesis 41 and 42 this morning from the vantage point of just one snippet of Scripture. So j- turn, if you will, in your Bibles to Genesis 41, 50 through 57. Genesis 41, 50 through 57, and as always, it will be on the wall behind me. You can read along there as well. Genesis 50, I'm sorry, 41, 50 through 57. Now before the year of the famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. He named the second Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. When the seven years of plenty which had been in the land of Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said, then there was a famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph, whatever he says to you, you shall do. When the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. You know, it took me a lot of times reading this whole story. And again, Joseph takes up well over 10 chapters of Scripture at the very end of Genesis. It's one of four major sections in the book of Genesis. And as I've read this story, it took me a lot of times before I realized the significance of this passage. Sometimes we just gloss over, we just read right over what are very, very important points. And this morning, the naming of a child is an important point. Now, you would probably agree with me, right? I mean, naming a kid is a big deal. We don't just think about it. If you Google child naming, you will find all sorts of different websites, things that will tell you this name means this. There's actually a Jewish website. Don't go there, okay? But there's a Jewish website that will tell you what sicknesses your child will be prone to depending on the name you name them. Okay, that's actually kind of a mystical weirdo thing that's not okay. But I've seen it and I've checked it out and it's not right. But nevertheless, naming a kid is a big deal. You know, my, my oldest daughter, Sophia, uh, it mean, she means wisdom. Um, that's what that name means, Sophia. And the, the middle one, Margaret Jean, Lightbringer, means it's a Danish name that means Lightbringer. And, and literally, I st- sit by those girls' bedside sometimes at night and pray those very things. God, bring wisdom to our world through Sophie. And I think it might someday work. It's not yet there, but she's seven. We'll hope for the best. Um, And God, bring light in this dark world through Maggie. And I pray these things. They're actually names that I think have significance. Noah's name means rest, and we're quite sure that we missed on him. He's three, and he's running around and throwing stuff at us. So, Brandy, you have a Noah. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. So names are significant, though. And Manasseh, Joseph's oldest son, has a very interesting meaning. It means to forget. It means to forget. All across the Bible, you will find the word remember. One of the things that people do most wrong with God is they forget. And so he constantly is instructing us to remember. You know, most of us don't fail because we do things intentionally wrong. It's just that we kind of forget to do them right. Right? We forget who our God is and we forget to remember him. And yet in this story, God is kind of, the, the whole Joseph story, maybe for God, has hinged on this place where Joseph decides to forget some things. 
In fact, I think we might even use another word for that. We might say, he released. He let go. And the thing I think he lets go of in this story is control. I think he walks away from the control that he felt all throughout his life. Now, let me tell you what I mean. We need to go back and kind of retell the story from this vantage point. But imagine that Joseph grew up as the wealthy son and the favorite son of a rich nomad, okay? Now, you might not think of shepherds in the Middle East and the ancient world as wealthy, but as they went, Jacob was a very wealthy one, okay? And Abraham, his grandfather, and Isaac, his father, were wealthy before him. And so Joseph was born into a family that was quite lucrative. He was born with a silver spoon in his mouth as far as he was concerned. And he was thought of as the favorite child. And so there was a high level of anticipation as to what would happen in this this young man's life. And he probably thought he had it all planned out. And then God comes along and gives him two dreams. And those dreams are about his future life. And they make it clear that even if Joseph already thought he was special, he probably didn't think he was special enough. Because now his brothers are going to bow down before him and he's going to become the leader of his family. Remember these stories from our past. And so Joseph is thought of as this amazing guy. And he thinks of himself as an amazing guy. And he even goes to his brothers and he tells them how amazing he is. Now, any of you who have probably told your siblings how amazing you are, how has that gone for you? Not so well, right? And so Joseph tries this, and he's met with the same resistance that we always are when we go brag about what we, what we think God's plan or anybody's plan is for our lives. And so Joseph, he is born into this family, but he kind of blows it slightly. And then his brothers blow it big time, right? They destroy him. They sell him off into slavery. And so he enters this kind of social spiral. He should have been upwardly mobile. He should have been moving forward in his life. And instead he moves dreadfully backwards, tragically backwards. And he goes from being the favorite son of a wealthy man with a great plan that God has for his life to being a slave in the house of Potiphar, one of the officials in Pharaoh's court in Egypt. He's so far removed that there's no hope that he will ever make it back. But yet in that context, he shines unexpectedly the phoenix rises from the ashes and, and he's developed into a person who his work ethic develops him into a person that Pharaoh or, or Potiphar recognizes. And so he's thought of as an amazing person and slowly but surely things are put under his leadership. Everybody in the household besides Potiphar and Potiphar's wife is now in submission to Joseph. He is the leader, the manager of this house. And I think once again, Joseph probably started to find meaning in his life. And he he thought by working hard and by putting effort in and doing what he needed to do, he was doing, you know, making God's plan or at least a good plan come about. And he was very much more and more in control. Well, what happens? He gets falsely accused. Again, he's betrayed. And again, it's by somebody who at least wishes they were close to him. That's not his brothers this time. It's Potiphar's wife who wishes that she could have a relationship with him. And he turns her down. And so he's thrown off into jail. But there again in jail, he rises above the, the average. He's not just a lowly prisoner. He rises to the place where he develops relationships with two of Pharaoh's officials, a baker and a cupbearer. And in, in those cupbearer and the baker, the relationship there, he also rises to a place where even the jailer, the head jailer, sees him as somebody who can be trusted. And he again becomes somebody who's worth noticing. And so he trusts the cupbearer and he says, listen, after he tells the dream, and if you were here last week, he interprets the cupbearer and the the baker's dream and he says the cupbearer is going to be restored to his service in Pharaoh's court, but the baker is going to be killed. And in fact, those things happen, but he expects after that that he's going to finally get out of prison, right? And the cupbearer does what? 
forgets about him. Drops the ball completely. And so we pick up this story this week, and the story I've read for you, the small bit of it, doesn't necessarily make light of that. But I want to make the point that going forward, Joseph has every chance of trying to control, trying to understand his situation and develop himself into a position where he can make the most of these situations. And frankly, every time, he works very hard to do it. He does his best. And things actually are changed. And he seems like he rises above, but then only to be kind of struck tragically by some blow and put down back into the place where he originally came from. So goes the life of Joseph. It almost reads like there's a wrestling match, doesn't it? Like he's trying to work his way back to a place of goodness, and yet every time there's something against him, someone working against him. Who is it? Who is it? God. Maybe all of this time, the wrestling match that Joseph has is with God. I suspect that's the story. What happens in today's part of the the narrative is that when Joseph is in jail, he's been there a while and probably he's given up. And I suspect, you know, there's something that changes in the life of somebody who knows they're going to die. And after being in slavery and in jail for the better part of a decade, in fact, a decade and a half, as he's in jail, I suspect he started to think, this is where it's going to end. There is no next step for me. This is the moment when, when I'm just going to realize that I, I'm not going anywhere after this. I've tried to get myself to a place where I can be successful. I've tried to make something worthwhile of my life, and each time it seems like God is against me. And who can doubt? There's a, there's a woman and a man later on in the Bible who uh, he's struck. His name is Job. He's struck by all of these horrible calamities. And at some point his wife just looks at him and says, why don't you just curse God and die? And you know, frankly, in prison, if Joseph would have done that, it would have seemed fairly normal, wouldn't it have? Wouldn't it, that have seemed like the thing to do at this moment? But instead what occurs is absolutely different. When, God, when he's at his lowest point and when he's wrestled with God to the place where he understands he's not going to get out of jail, I figure there's, there's probably this final moment. This past week, Sarah Hicks, I told you, passed away in her house. You know, if a house in Pennsylvania is, is still in the property of a person who dies, it goes into probate. And so last Friday, her family, not knowing she was going to pass away, thinking she had weeks, months, maybe even years left, they decided they needed to sell the house. And they were going to settlement over this house. Now, Sarah had lived in this home from 1959 to 2009 when she moved into the Frederick Mennonite community. Fifty years of living in the same home. She actually been married and lost her husband and remarried and lost that husband and raised kids and now then raised grandkids. And there's this whole line of story that happened in Sarah's house connected to this, to this house. There was an amazing kind of connection between her and the house. Now, nobody told her that they were selling her house but five hours after the settlement where that house was sold she passed away and nobody saw it coming and her family sat there just stunned thinking okay she finally got to the place and in fact the hospice nurse and the chaplain were there and they told us as a family I was there with them they gathered and they said you know it was as though she just decided at this moment that it was over and I suspect that at some moment at the end of Joseph's slavery and at the end of his imprisonment he said it's over there's no hope And it's at that moment that the cupbearer shows up in the court of Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, listen, I had these two dreams and there's seven cattle and the first seven were these beautiful, rich, amazing cattle and they they came out of the Nile River, the big river in Nile and they came out onto the bank and then these nasty, 
iffy cattle came out behind them. And the, the nasty cattle ate the really great ones. And he said, then I woke up. Well, then another dream happened. He falls back asleep and there are these rich ears of grain that come out of the Nile and then seven nasty ears, just like the cows come out and the nasty ones eat the good ones. And he wakes up. And so he comes into the courtroom the next morning and he stands before his wisdom officials, all of the people who are supposed to make sense of Pharaoh's life. And he says, what, what does this all mean? And none of them can tell him. And it's all of a sudden that the cupbearer thinks, you know what, I made a mistake way back when, and I don't really want to bring this up, but I need to. And so he says, listen, Pharaoh, I remember when you were mad at me and you threw me into prison, I ran into a guy in prison who I think could interpret this dream for you. And so they haul Joseph unexpectedly out of prison and into the court of Pharaoh. The Bible makes it clear in the original language that they don't actually change his underclothes. Now you, you go, okay, why do you care about the underclothes, Josh? It's because they were in such a hurry. Why were they in such a hurry? Because Pharaoh was furiously angry. These people were supposed to answer his questions, and if you couldn't answer the most powerful person in the world's questions, what happened to you? Off with your head, you know? And so they grab Joseph and they hurry him into the court of Pharaoh, not even stripping him down and giving him a bath. He still smells like prison. They put, a new, they put a new robe on him and they haul him into Pharaoh's court and they say, there you go, you better make sense of this. And the interesting thing is, Joseph has been able to interpret the cupbearer's dream and the baker's dream. And in fact, he's able, through the power of God, to interpret Pharaoh's dream. What two dreams is he not able to interpret? His own. At the very start of the story, there's, these, there's this set of dreams that he couldn't interpret and that he's never been able to interpret. And so he's able to interpret everybody else's dream but his, and his life, which needs interpreting, in one sense, is very much left unidentified. What is the point of this Joseph story? We don't know. We're left to wonder. What's the big deal with it? And then he rises to the top and he interprets Pharaoh's dream, and Pharaoh puts him as the second most powerful person in the world, and he decides that he's going to tax all of the people of Egypt and take a fifth of their grain for seven years, and he ends up being able to feed the world. And he rises to the top. And it's at this point that it's very tempting to believe the plan of God has been realized because, after all, this poor beaten-down kid who you know, was dragged off into slavery and then into prison, well, now he is the second most powerful man in the world. But I, sus- I think that would be the wrong understanding. Because that would not be what the plan of God is all about. The plan of God is all about saving his people. The plan of God is developing a nation of people, and we've talked about that. And it's not until this moment where he names his son literally forgetfulness that you realize that Joseph is deciding to give up on the plan of God. He's deciding to give up on all of this significance that he thought he had. You know, Joseph was a 17-year-old who really thought he was something. And all the way, all the way through slavery and through prison, I suspect he still kind of thought if he could rise above the ashes, he would somehow show himself to be something. But now as the second most powerful person in the world, he decides, I'm going to give up on that whole thing. I'm going to walk away from it and I'm just going to do the best I can with where I'm at. And I'm going to decide that I'm going to be a ruler in Egypt and I'm going to transform the Middle East and I'm going to do great work, but it's not actually going to make any sense out of God's plan for my life and I'm never going to see my family again. 
The greatest moment in Joseph's life, I suspect, comes much later when he finally sees his younger brother Benjamin. And when he finally meets up with his dad again, he's not at all necessarily satisfied with this second-in-command place that he's now risen to. What he's actually waiting for, what he was hoping for, was to get to the place where his family was back together and his world was reunited and restored. And yet at this moment he says, that's probably never going to happen. And he lets it all go. And he says, I can't somehow control myself past the plan of God. And though I don't think he knew he was wrestling with God this whole time, behind the scenes there's a God who is using every one of these little places to develop him into a person who can lead, a person who can change the world, a person who will absolutely make all the difference in the Middle East. And eventually, Jacob and his 12 sons will be saved. How? Through this man's faithful activity. Now, I've got to tell you that I feel like this is me. I live life in control mode. If somebody says something that I disagree with, what do you think my knee-jerk reaction is? My mom told me when I was three that I asked the question, why, more than any of her kids. Why? Why? Sunday morning, we're going to church. Why? Because we want to worship God. Why? Because he's great? Why? And at some point, my parents stopped and said, because we said so. You know? The first time I said that to one of my children, I was like, oh, I promised myself I would never say what my parents always said to me. Why? Why do we ask the question, why? Because we want to be in control of our existences. The fact is that most of us live lives that are only partially, only slightly in control of even a fragment of our existence. What happens to us in our world is far beyond anything we can control. We don't know what our economies are going to look like. We don't know what the, the, the health is, what health is going to affect us, whether we're going to have good health or bad health. We don't know whether the people around us are going to be faithful to us, whether the relationships that we walk through life with, whether they're going to be loyal and we can, we can actually trust these people. We don't know. Periodically, you know, Shelby and I like to watch movies, and periodically you, the, one of the themes I see in movies over and over again is that people have become aware that we're afraid to love as a culture. Why are we afraid to love? Because when we put love out there, we actually put ourselves in the line. And when we extend ourselves like that, we open the possibility that we'll be damaged, right? I don't know what Shelby's going to do tomorrow. Honestly. Shelby, do you know what you're going to do tomorrow? This world we live in is a hodgepodge of things that are far beyond our control. Two years plus ago, two years and a month and a half ago, we had this moment where the largest single bankruptcy in American history occurred and nobody saw it coming. Behind the scenes, a group of Wall Street businessmen were trying to make a deal occur so that Lehman Brothers could avoid bankruptcy, but in fact they weren't able to do that. And Monday morning arrived with the news that one of the largest companies in our country was going to fail. I'm from Michigan, and nobody would have ever guessed that General Motors could, could be bankrupt, and yet the United States government owns a good portion of, bank, of General Motors now because we've bailed them out. My grandfather, my great-uncle, Shelby's uncle, all worked for General Motors. And two years ago, as they went bankrupt, the union offices in southeast Michigan were crowded with people who were sitting on the counters wondering if their health care would be erased, whether their pension plans would evaporate. We don't know. The truth is we don't know. 
Now, the amazing thing about God is he understands this, and he does know, and he is in control, and he is trying to get us to a place where we will listen. But we want to be the people who understand and not give it over to him. Over and over in our lives, we continue to walk this path. And what it looks like to me when I'm reading the Joseph story is that he is walking the path that is just normal humanity. It's not that Joseph's a terrible guy. I don't want to draw that picture. He's just a normal guy. In fact, if anything, he's above average because I would have been somebody who would have succumbed long before he did. And yet as he's walking through this path, he's wrestling with God, and God is getting him more and more to a place where he can work in his life. And finally, when he names that son, what I think it means is, it's over. I'm just going to give it over all to God, and whatever happens with the rest of my life, it's just icing on the cake, because I'm back in a position where I can at least eat. I've got a bed to sleep in at night. I even have a wife and two kids. This is wonderful. You know what I'm saying? And it's at that moment that what occurs? Chapter 42 of Genesis. His brothers walk back into his life. After he's let go, and the plan of God takes a whole new spin, and God develops this thing into a a relationship and a reconciliation, and the possibility that it's not just the Egyptians he wants to save, it's this great nation of Israel. In the New Testament, In the New Testament, there's this story about a Joseph and that Joseph is a stepdad to a little baby named Jesus. And because of a dream, Joseph and his wife Mary, they flee from a a city called Bethlehem and they go to a place called Egypt. You see some of the same pieces, don't you? Same names, same countries. And it's amazing because Herod the Great has decided, and nobody even knows this, but Herod the Great has decided to kill all the babies in Bethlehem trying to get at Jesus. And Jesus miraculously escapes with his family to Egypt. And it's God who through a dream works that in. But I have to tell you that 2,000 years before that, God amazingly does about exactly the same thing. When he saves the family line of Jacob from absolute extinction by taking a little baby who was born in this family and turning him into the second most powerful person in all of Egypt. And he has to go through prisonership and slavery to do that. He has to get through these terribly rocky periods. But at the end, the plan is amazing. If there is no Jacob and there is no Judah and there is none of the the family that will become Israel, there is no Jesus. And frankly, at that point, there is no us. Wouldn't you agree? Control has a terribly powerful effect. And when we release it, we allow God to move in our lives. And as Joseph releases this power that he thinks he holds, what actually takes place is God takes over his life and amazing things happen. And the effect of which we're still realizing today, we're still experiencing some of those things, there's still shoes to drop. It's amazing what God can do. Now, I want to draw just a few application points from this in closing, just a few things for our daily lives, things that connect with us. It says, my first point, releasing control is a process. It is not done in a day. You know, we would love to stop this thing. We would love to stop halfway through the process of God working in our lives. Wouldn't you agree? When we have a dark moment, a difficult moment, we'd love to just call the psychologist and say, hey, explain this away for me because I'm going through a tough time. But I think it takes Joseph a long time to develop into the person God wants him to be. It takes a development that takes a decade and a half, roughly, to get Joseph to a place where he can be the man that God can use. I have no idea what God's plan is in your life. I would love to ask for a dream regarding you. But, you know, it's not going to happen. 
God doesn't want to tell me your plan. But whatever it is, it's going to take significant amounts of time as he develops you into the person who can handle it. God has a plan for your life, but it's going to take his work, and that work is not always easy. It's not always simple, and you can't just walk away from it. Point two, only after releasing control can we see the real plan of God. If you're Joseph, it's easy to believe the plan of God is just simply to finally get to a place where you're the grand vizier of Egypt, where you've finally arrived at a place where you're successful. But the fact is that's not the success God is after. The success he's after is a reconciliation with the family of Jacob and, a finally, and finally a nation-building enterprise that will take place over the next 400 years in Egypt as God uses the greatest nation on earth as an incubator to raise this tiny group of people, Israelites, until 400 years later they're a million and a half people. When the book of Genesis ends, there's only 70 people in the, jo- in the Jacob family. And when Exodus begins, the very next book in the Bible, it tells us there's roughly a million and a half of them. And so when we release control, we start to see the plan of God. And Joseph doesn't understand all of it, but he gets a whole, a lot bigger picture at the end of his life when he realizes that all of this works out. One step further, the true struggle is to understand the difference between our responsibility and God's. There are all sorts of things we can't control, and those are the things that often keep us up at night, right? Those are the things that we ponder, wondering, are we... Are we people who are in control of our own destinies or is someone else? We use terms like financial security because we want to be in charge of our own financial well-being. But the fact of the matter is we're just one Wall Street crash away from not being well off at all. There is no financial security, no ultimate real financial security outside of Jesus Christ. And this passage asks us to believe that the true struggle of life is to understand the difference between the things we can control and the things we can't. Chuck Colson was a Wall Street insider. I'm sorry, a Washington insider. He worked inside the Nixon presidency, and he was a very, very powerful man. But he felt it all came apart during the Watergate scandal, and he actually spent a year plus in prison. And he tells that story in his book. But one of the most amazing things that I find about Colson is that on his desk to this day is the ultimate opposite. He finds Christ in the midst of this going to prison and and difficult scandal that he was involved in. And so years later, he writes on his desk and puts it, and it's still there today, this sign that says, faithfulness, not success. Faithfulness, not success. You know, what Joseph could never control was Potiphar's wife and what her tongue would do to him. What Joseph could never control was, was his brothers and what their betrayal would do to him. What Joseph could never control was what would happen next at any point in his life, but what he could control was his faithful following of Jesus, even in the midst of this whole mess that he was involved in. And the small little pieces of faithfulness are the things that add up to the huge change in his life. And the ability he has to let go of, God, uh, let go of what he thought God's plan was eventually restores God's plan to the ability to work. But all along the way, it would never have worked out if he wasn't faithful with the small things. He couldn't control the big ones. Understanding the difference between controlling the big and the small makes all the difference in our lives. In Philippians, it says that we're not to be anxious about anything, but everything by prayer and petition. We need to make our requests known to God. And who can doubt that Joseph made his request known night after night after night after night to God, and eventually it arrived. But it took years to get there. The plan was brilliant, but the sacrifice was huge. Wouldn't you agree? As we close this message, as I just 
close on this part of the Joseph story, I want you to imagine yourself in his shoes. What does it take for you to let go from the things that you think you're in charge of? The things that you, you know these things in your heart because they're the things you worry and you're tense about. They might be your kids. They might be your money. They might be the relationships in your life for that one broken one that you always wish would come back. Whatever it is, are you able to give that over to God to see what he wants to do with it? Or is it sitting there as the roadblock in your life that keeps you from moving forward and keeps you from accepting what he wants, what his true plan is? The Joseph story reminds us that we don't actually know the plan of God. At any point, there's always a bigger, better, brighter picture than the one we usually see. There's always something more, and we don't know what that is. The question is, will we be faithful in the moment? The question is, are we willing to let go and forget like Joseph? 